Thanks, Springer. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Genesis, and we'll start in chapter 12. As you're finding that, um, I'm not going to be offended by the fact that you guys are as far away as you can possibly get from me. I, 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 no offense taken. Um, so we're doing this six-week series on um, what the Bible says about various just kind of interesting, at times even controversial topics. I feel a little ringy, uh, Brandon. I was like, yeah, I see you going back there. You're like my security blanket. When Brandon walks to the board, I just feel better. And um, so tonight we're going to be talking about what the Bible says about Israel. And maybe that's not very interesting to you. I think maybe like my generation and older um, tend to be interested by this. I think younger Christians are not as concerned about this. And I think there's reasons for, for each generation's being, you know, having varying levels of interest in it. But I think it's a very important point and question that we want to think about deeply tonight. Um, we've actually been hitting on it a little bit when we're in Romans 9, so we're going to do that next week. Tyler's going to be looking at what the Bible says about free will. And then I think the week after that, Robert's going to lead us in maybe politics or race relations. And we're going to look at even, you know, how should a Christian react to maybe a, a gay friend and a gay neighbor, maybe going to a homosexual wedding. How should a Christian handle being invited to that? We're going to look at even immigration. And, all, and by all of these things, we're not trying to give you what we think Christians should believe um, about maybe immigration or politics or this or that. But we're trying to see how the Bible should inform our conscience um, on some of these important issues. This one, though, is a little bit different. Um, just because we've been in Romans 9 and we've been looking at this idea of Israel and God's faithfulness to Israel, I really wanted to kind of get a little bit into the nitty-gritty and really think about it deeply um, in this context rather than on a Sunday morning where it might be a little bit too um, lesson-like for, for a Sunday morning. So... Um, with that, let me pray, and then we're going we're gonna to get into, and hopefully you got a handout. There's some there on that table, <laughs> and that's a common word. I don't know why I didn't know it. And then there's some in the back there that you can get, um, and it's just three questions, and there's not really anything on there. I just thought it might be something that you might want to take notes on, um, and we're going to ask these three questions and, and, and get into it. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises to your people. Thank you for Israel. And help us understand the Israel of God in the Bible more clearly. And thank you for the only one true obedient Israelite, Jesus, in whom all the promises of God have their yes and amen. So help us tonight to think deeply and biblically about this. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I want to frame our discussion. We're going to be kind of all around the Bible tonight. And I want to frame our discussion by looking at three questions. Who is Israel? You can put those up on the screen. Who is Israel? Uh, and you have them on your sheet. Who inherits the promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament or from the Old Testament? And then how should Christians today view the modern state or nation of, of Israel? Now, um, I think some things that I may uh, say tonight may be different from things that I think a majority of, of, of American evangelicalism sort of assumes. Um, I think many of us probably grew up in a culture where um, we are operating under the assumption that I, I do want to challenge tonight that when the Bible speaks about Israel, that it's always speaking about national political Israel, an ethnic group of people that we know of now as the nation of Israel. And many Christians sort of sort of view 
that flatly. And if, if you don't, I think, understand the nuances to what the Bible means when it talks about Israel, um, I think it can, um, it can affect um, and impair your understanding of how the Bible fits together. Um, and I also think it has implications for just what, you've, what you understand about God's faithfulness to his promises. Um, and then even, even just kind of modern day politics and all sorts of things. Um, so hear me out if I say some things along the way that challenge you, because I think we'll get around to some things that hopefully will bring it all together. So who is Israel? Look, let's look at Genesis chapter 12. So you know God created the whole world. And Adam and Eve are our first parents. So everybody in this room is a descendant of Adam and Eve. We are all connected. There is no real such thing as different races. We're all the human race. We have different ethnicities. But we're all part of one race with one head, two parents. Adam and Eve, we fell. Um, God sort of starts over again with the flood. We all come from Noah, and then the world populated, the table of nations in Genesis 10. And then we see Abraham. At this time, he's called Abram, and he's just this pagan, pagan idolater wandering around in the desert. And God calls this man Abraham uh, in Genesis 12. And at this time, he's called Abram. So in Genesis 12, verse 1, God chooses Abram. At this time, there is no Israel. Israel as a nation has not been formed. And he's going to call this man Abram and make a nation through Abraham, Abram. And he says in verse 1 of Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And that eventually becomes Israel. Israel is the name given to Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob is also called Israel. Joseph, the four sort of patriarchs in the Old Testament. I will make of you a great nation, that becomes Israel, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so he says, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to make, I'm going to give you offspring, I'm going to give you, um, I'm going to bless you, and then eventually he reiterates this promise throughout Genesis and he says, I'm going to give you land. So if you go to Genesis, just the next chapter over, verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 14, then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. So he's promising Abraham offspring. He's promising him land, which we know of as the Canaan land. It's a physical, actually, place on the earth. And then he's, he's, he's giving him blessing. And he says, through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And, and now, you know, we, we want to read. This is a principle of just Bible reading and Bible interpretation. We have the benefit of reading the Old Testament through the lens, the interpretive lens of the New Testament. And we're, that's a principle. Know, know that the New Testament interprets, sheds light on, un, like unravel, reveals unfolds the Old Testament for us. But at this time, God's promised him land, blessing, and offspring. And then he continues. He, he reiterates that, that promise of land in Genesis 15. You can see there in verse um, 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. And he goes on to kind of sketch out the boundaries. And then you see it again in Genesis 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 8. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. And so just to kind of give us a flow here, we see 
that God um, calls Abraham, and in Genesis, he promises, Genesis 12 and a few other verses, he promises him land and offspring and, and blessing. And we know eventually that becomes the nation of Israel. And, and we know that Israel becomes a kind of picture of the people. Of, it is the people of God. And we see many similarities between God's purposes for Israel in the Old Testament and his purposes for the church in the New Testament. He's creating a people, not merely for those people, so that through those people, he would bless all the peoples of the earth. That's Israel's mission in the Old Testament. And it's the church's mission in the New Testament. So, so you see a kind of parallel there. So we read the rest of Genesis and we read how God is forming his people. He's forming his nation. Eventually at the end of Genesis, they find themselves because of their rebellion out of the promised land in Egypt. So they're in Egyptian captivity and God raises up Moses to deliver them from Egyptian captivity. And so we get to the Exodus and God delivers them from, he, he rescues them from Egyptian captivity, the Red Sea. And right after God rescues them from Egypt, what does he do? It's, in other words, it's, the, it's a picture of the gospel. The rescuing of Egypt is a kind of foreshadowing of how Jesus, the true and better Moses, will deliver us not from merely earthly captors, but from our true enemy, which isn't Pharaoh, but sin and, and our enemy, the devil. And so the exodus of Israel in the Old Testament is a kind of foreshadowing of salvation. And what does God do with Israel right after he, um, he, get, he, he rescues them from uh, Egypt? He, he, he says, you go to the, back to the promised land where you're supposed to go. It was a 12-day journey, I think, and it actually took them 40 years because of their disobedience. You ever go around your elbow to get to your nose? It, yeah. And if you look at a map of Israel's journeying, journeying in, the, in the wilderness, it's like a jagged line. And that's a kind of picture of our own sanctification, isn't it? God saves us. And he says, I'm going to bring you finally home, but we wander through the desert. That's a kind of picture of sanctification. It's sort of played out in the life of Israel. And God says, I'm going to bring you back into the land, but I've saved you for a purpose. And that purpose is that you would be my people, back to what he said to, to, to Abraham in Genesis, that you would be my people set apart and holy so that through you, you would be a display to the nations of what it means to be the people of God. And so after the grace of the rescue of the Red Sea comes the law, the holiness. God's calling his people to be holy. And so the law isn't just God being angry and just messing with people in the Old Testament. It's God separating his people so that they would be holy so that they could fulfill what he called them to be in Genesis when he first called Abraham a holy people set apart so that through them he would bless all the peoples of the earth. Are you, are you tracking with me? I know I'm going fast, but it's 7.30 and I mean, I want to get out of here by 7.30 and it's a school night. So you, you, you're tracking with me so far? So this is Israel, okay? They're, and it's a kind of picture almost of the Christian life in a way. And they give them, and here's the part of the law. In fact, this promise, now listen to me, listen to me. The covenant that God makes with Abraham is in a sense unconditional, but it's also conditional. What do I mean by that? He unconditionally elects Abraham to be his man. It's not because there was anything good in Abraham, 
But the promises he makes to Abraham, that then he makes to Israel through the law, just a kind of continuation of his promise to Abraham, is con- the blessings of his covenant, the blessings of the law, are conditional upon their obedience. In fact, in places like Deuteronomy and Leviticus, God says, if you disobey the law, I will vomit you out of the land. I will vomit you out of the land. And that's, that's exactly what happens to Israel. Israel continues to disobey, and they um, find themselves on the run and harassed. They'll be in the land for a while. They'll be harassed by different you know, captors, whether it's the um, Assyrians or the Babylonians. And then when we get to the beginning of the New Testament, it is the Romans, right? Even though they're in the land, they're captives in the land. And so during this whole journey of the Old Testament where God says, I'm going to make a people, I'm going to give them a land, and I'm going to make them holy, and I'm going to say that they must be my people if they're going to stay in this land, and, and, and because I want, to, I want to show my holiness to the nations through them. His mission with Israel, just like his mission in the church, is evangelism, because God's always had a heart for all the nations, right? But the problem with Israel in the Old Testament is they can't live up to the, to the law. They can't fulfill the conditions, the stipulations of the covenant, just like us, right? And so, God raises up these prophets, and these prophets speak about a new covenant, a new covenant. God is saying, okay, I'm going to make a new covenant. And it's not like God is reacting to this. This is all part of God's plan, right? We know, and there's places in the Bible where it says that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. So this new covenant in Christ has always been part of God's plan. He's given, uh, he's given Israel a covenant, and he's attached the blessings of the covenant obedience to their obedience, but they continue to fail him. And so God gives him a new covenant, which is essentially the gospel in shadow form in the Old Testament. And he speaks to, through Jeremiah. Um, we won't take the time to read it just for, for, for time's sake, but in Jeremiah 31 and Jeremiah 33, or 32 and 33, God speaks about the new covenant where he says, I'm not going to write the law on tablets in Mount Sinai, but I'm going to, this, in this new covenant, it's going to be similar, but it's going to be different. I'm going to write the law on your heart. And then in Ezekiel 36, this is a really important passage, Ezekiel 36, God says, he he reiterates the promises of this new covenant, and he says, here's what I'm going to do in this new covenant, because the old covenant, which had its purpose, could not bring about obedience. The law cannot bring about obedience. It It can only shine the light on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Here's what the law does. The law shows us what is needed, or the law shows us what is right, God's holiness. The law shows us what is wrong, our sin. And the law shows us what is needed, Christ who's coming, right? Somebody to, to obey for us. And so the new covenant is a promise that where God says, I am going to give you a new heart and a new law. And this new law is not going to be written on tablets of stone, but I'm going to write it on your heart and I'm going to actually cause you to obey me. And so my unfaithful people, Israel, who can't uphold the promises of the covenant, 
I'm going to make them faithful by this new covenant. And that's really all we know at this time. Let's not think it yet through a New Testament lens. We just see this new covenant. We see a new heart. Let's do the little symbol there. And a new law. And there's going to be obedience. There will be obedience in this new covenant, unlike there was in the old. And then we get to the New Testament. And the New Testament gets us to the cross, right? And the cross tells us, shows us, that the only one who is truly obedient is who? Jesus, right? Jesus is the only one who's truly, he's the only one who's, who's really obedient. He, he, unlike every other Israelite who's failed to obey God's law, Jesus obeys the law for us. And that's, you guys know we've been looking at Romans on Sunday mornings, right? That's the whole point of Romans 3, where it says that the law and the prophets are speaking about a righteousness of God, because God wants to make a righteous people that he can set up on a city on a hill, so that through this righteous people, this city on a hill, they would be a witness to the nations. But the problem is none of us can be righteous, Think of yourself as an Old Testament Jew. None of us can be righteous. And so in Romans chapter 3, there's this beautiful passage about how how the law and the prophets point to a righteousness from God, which is in Christ. And And Christ on the cross lives a perfect life. He fulfills all all of the stipulations. He fulfills the law. He obeys it perfectly for us. You guys have heard this before, haven't you? He lives an obedient life for his people, and then he lays down his life on the cross to absorb the punishment for all of our covenant breaking. So do you see that? There's two things going on there. We need forgiveness for our covenant breaking. That's his death on the cross. And not only do we need forgiveness, we need the credit, the positive aspect of his righteousness being given to us. We don't just need our guilt removed, we need righteousness given to us. We need a new heart. And that's what the cross does. Jesus dies for our punishment and he gives us his righteousness. That's what the reformers said, that on the cross it's the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness on the cross. And so Jesus on the cross then becomes the one true, the only one true, he's the only one, he's the only Jew, think of it this way, think of Jesus as a Jewish man, he's the only Jew who has actually fulfilled all of these stipulations and commandments perfectly. So actually, Jesus is the only one who rightfully can receive any blessing from God because of his obedience, right? And so that brings us to what, how Paul interprets this. Then look at, look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 is a super important chapter to understand how the Bible fits together from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Are you tracking with me so far? I know, I'm, what are you going to say? No. I mean, I know, I'm, I'm, that's manipulative. I hope you're tracking with me so far. Um, and you see that God's made a people, Israel, they can't fulfill the requirements. And so he, he gives him a new covenant that then is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, right? So then Jesus, and, and listen, how, listen how Paul interprets all of what we just said. He says, go to verse, let's go to verse 16 first, guys. Not, not verse 7, but verse 16 first. Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham 
and to his offspring. Remember we talked about all these offspring promises of land and blessing. And this is what Paul is this is Paul interpreting Genesis for us. He says, "Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring." It does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Do you see how significant that is? Paul is interpreting for us that who he was actually speaking about in Genesis was Jesus. And why is Jesus the only true offspring of of Abraham? Because he's the only one who's actually obeyed the things that were commanded of Abraham and Moses and all of Israel in the law. Do you see that? So Jesus is the only one who can rightly inherit the promise of God. And then go go up to verse 7 of Galatians 3. Know then, Galatians 3 verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then go to the end of Galatians 3, where I think he just ties it all together. Galatians 3, verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what is he saying there? He's saying that Abraham had faith, and God blessed Abraham because of faith, and that faith was a kind of shadow, and we see that ultimately what that faith is in, it's in Christ, and now Christ, because he's the one that has obeyed God, And now those that are in Christ, that believe in Christ, are Abraham's offspring, singular. So if you're a Christian, you, what what Paul is saying here is radical. If you're a Christian, you are the offspring of Abraham. Do you get that? Let's take it one step further. Go to an obscure chapter that you're probably very familiar with, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We just went over this a couple weeks ago, but I want to tie it together for you. Romans chapter 9. Paul leaves no doubt about what he's talking about. He says in Romans chapter 9, remember this question we're answering is, who is Israel? Who is Israel? In Romans chapter 9, Paul says in verse 7, Or verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, to bring about an obedient people. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That means that Paul is delineating two types, two different meanings of Israel. He's saying that there is a physical Israel. There's a physical Israel. And there is a spiritual Israel. Do you see that? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Verse 6, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Okay? He even says it one step further. Go to Romans chapter 2. He even gets even more, more, just more clear In Romans chapter 2, where he actually uses the word Jew, Romans chapter 2, verse 28, 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So do you see what Paul has, has done there? He has redefined who Israel is spiritually. We have ethnic Israel, physical Israel, and we have spiritual Israel. And those, how do you, how do you become spiritual Israel? By believing in the one true Jew. Remember, if you were in Christ, you were of Abraham's offspring, the children of the promise, children of faith. So it means that all those that believe in Jesus are those whose hearts have been circumcised by faith and are true Jews. Are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? So let's say something radical here. That means that you are a pork-eating Gentile in Rome in the first century. And you've been at odds with your Jewish neighbor. And you hear the gospel and you believe in Jesus. Paul is saying that you are a true Jew. That's scandalous. And let's fast forward it to today. A Arab Muslim who repents of his unbelief and trusts in Jesus is a true Jew. You see that? And, and so... Spiritual Israel is, is those who believe in Jesus. And Ephesians, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Just real quickly, we won't take the time to read it all, but I want you to see it. Paul says that there's, he kind of sums this all up in Ephesians chapter 2. And he says, he's speaking to Gentiles in Ephesus, and he says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, you nasty bacon eaters, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise. In other words, you had no part in the covenant of, 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 of these promises to, God, to, to God's people, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself as is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. So he's taken Jews and Gentiles and he's made one new man, which is the, is the, is the believer, the Christian, in Christ. And so who, are, who is Israel? This is really important. Who is Israel? Israel is, at least in this sense, biblically in the New Testament, is those who are believing and trusting in Jesus. And the New Testament church starts out as almost exclusively ethnic Jews who are believing in Jesus, but they are true Jews not because they're ethnic Jews, but because they're believing in Jesus. And then we see the gospel spread to the Gentiles, and all of these Gentiles believe, and they're part of Christ, who is really the one true Israelite, who is, is the one true Jew, who is spiritual Israel. Does that make sense? Any, any real quick questions before we move on to the second, second point? So Israel, 
We need to then read thoughtfully. Sometimes Israel in the Old Testament is just, is just referred to as ethnic Israel, and other times in the New Testament especially, it's referring to believers in Jesus, spiritual circumcised hearts. Any, any questions about that? I'm stimulating you amazingly. I can tell you're just excited. Okay, so then the next question is, who inherits the promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament? Who inherits the promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament? Well, something, the New Testament is really, really, really interesting how it handles all of these land promises to Israel in the Old Testament. It doesn't really talk about them. It doesn't, in fact, all of the promises to Israel in the Old Testament about land and the specific Canaan land are kind of silent in the New Testament. But we do see in the New Testament that the New Testament writers talk about the transition goes from a physical piece of land, physical promised land, to the spiritual inheritance of believing true Israel, to the new Canaan, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is coming down from from heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. And so... I would argue that those who inherit the promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament is not modern-day ethnic political Israel, but spiritual Israel, the church. And look at what, look at, this is what, this is what the New Testament says about the land. It speaks of the land as being the new heavens and the new earth. It speaks of it as being Christ. In Matthew chapter five, go ahead and put that up there for us. Matthew chapter five, verse five, it says that blessed are the meek for they shall inherit not just a physical border, but the earth. First Corinthians chapter three, go ahead and put that up there for us. First Corinthians three, uh, so let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So you see that the inheritance for spiritual Israel in the New Testament isn't just a physical piece of land, it's the whole world. And we see in Hebrews, uh, we even see kind of a shadow of this in the Old Testament and, and then it explained in the New Testament in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Look at what it says about Abraham. Hebrews 11, verse 8. I'm squinting this whole time, and maybe I should just put on my glasses. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an, as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. Okay, at this time we're thinking a physical piece of land, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. But then look at verse 10. But he, even Abraham sort of saw this land as a kind of temporary picture of a greater eternal reality. Look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So there's this kind of looking forward, even if he didn't understand it fully at the time, where the hope, the, the true promise to Israel wasn't just a physical piece of land, but I think it's a, a kind of Old Testament shadow that's pointing to the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that is the inheritance of all those that are in Christ. And so who inherits, who inherits the promises of God to Israel in the Old Testament? Well, I think the New Testament redefines that for us. It says that the people who inherit the promises of God 
is true Israel, believing Israel, and the promises of God have now been actualized, realized, not in a physical piece of dirt in the Middle East, but it's actually, all of that was a kind of symbol of the Old Testament pointing forward to the new heavens and the new earth, which is believing Israel's, all those that are believing in Jesus, whether ethnic Jews or ethnic Gentiles. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So, and this may be the most controversial thing I'm going to say tonight, so everybody say, I love you, Brad. Before I say this, um, sometimes American conservative Christians, I think because they've been influenced by political forces and maybe some less than discerning theology, will say things like, God will bless those who bless Israel. Okay? And I think what they mean by that is that if the United States politically aligns with the nation of Israel, that God somehow in some sort of mysterious way is now obligated to bless the countries that politically align with Israel. I think that's a misunderstanding of the promises of blessing to, to Israel in the Old Testament. Do you see that? Because the promises to Israel in the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament, we actually see it then are being fulfilled in not ethnicity, but in faith in Jesus. Do you see that? So yeah, God will bless those who bless Israel, but I think Israel is the believing people of God, not modern-day political Israel, okay? That's important, and I know I might get a little bit of hate mail because that might rock your, your conservative ideology, but I think it's better for you to, I think, understand the Bible better than to be in a particular voting block. Now, that does not mean that I don't think America should support Israel. I think generally America should support Israel. Just like I think America should support Canada and Great Britain because they're our allies. And because they're the only sane nation in a chaotic part of the world. And, and, because I think God is not done with Israel yet, and we're going to look at that in just a second. God is not done with ethnic Israel. God, God has a promise, a kind of appendage on his redemptive plan that we're going to see here, we're going to read in just a second. But do you see, do you see that? So Israel, Israel's not some sort of rabbit's foot or good luck charm that Americans can do whatever they want. We can just be a wicked nation like we basically are. And we, as long as we support Israel, there's just some kind of mysterious rabbit's foot of good luck that God's going to, going to bless us. That's not what the Bible says. Those who bless Christ, who's the one true Jew, and who obey him and follow him and have faith in him, those are the ones that God blesses. Do you see that? See how that kind of changes the way maybe you read sort of the Bible? But let me say this. God, praise God, God's not done with ethnic Israel, and ethnic Israel is very, very, very important. And we're going to get to this eventually, maybe sometime in 2019, when we get to Romans chapter 11. So go to Romans chapter 11. God is not done with ethnic Israel. And there's much more that we can say about this. Um, and this, is, this, is, this is, gets into our third question. How should Christians today view the modern political state of Israel? Well, we should view them as covenant, covenant breakers like every other non-believer in the world that doesn't believe in Jesus. No Jew, no ethnic Jew will be right with God simply because they're Jewish. You're only right with God 
because you're trusting in the one true Jew who is Christ and you're part of believing Israel. There's only one true Jew and his name is Jesus and those who by faith trust in him are grafted into Israel and part of the body of Israel, which is Jesus, okay? So how should modern day Christians view Israel? My problem with organizations like Christians United for Israel is unwittingly, I think they give a kind of false assurance to the nation of Israel because we say to them, hey, we're behind you politically, and maybe we should be for lots of good reasons, but there's a kind of blurring of we're behind you politically, and we also think you're okay spiritually merely because you're Jewish, and that is wicked. Jews aren't going to be saved merely because they're Jews. They will only be saved if they trust in Jesus. And so Israel, more than Israel needs American political support, and it may need that for a variety of good reasons, Israel needs the gospel. And American Christians should give Israel the gospel, and yeah, maybe political support too, but not because they're obligated to it for some sort of strange rabbit foot blessing in the Bible. And so... What, is this, what does the Bible say about the future of ethnic Israel? What, what's God up to? I mean, come on, 1948, Israel reconstituted as a nation. Israel and, I mean, Germany and Hitler and all of its wickedness was used by God, I believe, as a pawn in his redemptive plan to reconstitute the nation of Israel. I'm not saying there's any verse prophetically saying this, but I think maybe what God is up to is bringing about what Romans 11 promises. And this is what it says in Romans 11 about the future of ethnic Israel. He says in Romans 11, verse 25, we're going to get to this. And Paul's big argument, remember what we've been going through in Romans 9, is most of ethnic Israel has rejected Christ. But true Israel has always been about God's purpose of election, whether Jew or Gentile, God will elect who he will elect, whether Jew or Gentile, regardless of ethnicity. And by the way, at the end of his argument in Romans 10, 9, 10, and 11, God, Paul says, by the way, God's going to circle back around. He's going to circle back around. And just because of his graciousness, he's going to save a whole bunch of those ethnic Jews. That's what I think he's saying in Romans 11. He says in verse 25 and 26, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, contextually, in the context of this, in this chapter, what he means by Israel in that sense is ethnic Israel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. In other words, God has hardened their hearts so that they won't believe until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, the gospel goes to all those that were not ethnically Jew. And that, I think that's just speaking about the church age, people coming. And in this way, all Israel, I don't think that means every individual Jew, but all Israel will be saved. I think he means all of those elect amongst Israel will be saved. So I think, and there's a lot more that we could say about this, and we'll get to that eventually when we look at Romans 11, is that God, just in his kindness, is going to come back around. And I think he's going to pour out his spirit upon Israel, whether that's over a long period of time through just the witness of the gospel to Jews and them trickling back into the kingdom, or whether it's a mass evangelism of, of ethnic Jews in the future, I don't know. But God's going to come back around, and he's not done with ethnic Israel yet. But the only way that any of those ethnic Jews will be saved is not because they're Jews, not because any temple is being rebuilt in Jerusalem, not because some sacrificial system is being reinstituted, but because they will bow their knee to Christ, who's the one true Jew, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. And if you don't see that, you actually blur the lines of the gospel. Do you see that? Because you, you sort of come up with this kind of two-track way 
And if you guys listen to this guy on TV, John Hagee, he's got kind of a, a portly pastor in Texas. You know who I'm talking about? John Hagee. Do not listen to him. He is wrong on a lot of stuff, but especially on this. He actually wrote a book where he talked about how there were two different tracks of salvation for Israel and the church. And he, so many people cried foul that he actually like edited it and republished it. And it's still whack. But I mean, come on, like, don't listen to it. A lot of people unwittingly sort of go along with that mentality that somehow the Jews, God's got some special plan for the Jews. He, he, he's going to be gracious to them in Romans 11, but there's, it's not some special plan. It's believing in the gospel in Christ. And that's the only way they will be saved, like every other person that has ever been saved through Jesus, who's the one true Jew and is the only one that can inherit the promise of God. So what does the world need? It needs Jesus. And, and that, I think that's the, the... Now, there's a whole bunch of... Uh, that are way beyond the, the, the purview of this discussion about politics and all that kind of stuff and how American political you know, government should interact with Israel. But none of that is tied to Israel as a kind of divine inheritor of God's blessing. That will only come if they're in Christ. Christ is the only one who divinely inherits the blessing. And until Israel bows their knee to Jesus, they, aren't, they, aren't, um, they, they, they will not inherit anything. And the hope of Israel is not a patch of dirt in the Middle East. It's the new heavens and the new earth like it is for every true Jew, which is Christ. And I, I, think, I think it will help us to see that. All right, one or two questions or insults. Yes, John. It'll just somebody run a microphone to him. Is that all Israel? Is that possibly spiritual Israel? It Jews could be that, that's an, and Gentiles. Yeah. Believing the, the, Jews and Gentiles. The, the, the full, yes, all Israel, meaning like what he's saying is there's a partial hardening that's come upon ethnic Israel until all the Gentiles come in. And then finally, all Israel, all the elect amongst the Jews and the Gentiles will be saved. And yes, I think that's probably a good interpretation and many people believe that. That's a good point, John. So I think, I think the modern day Christian should love Israel. I think we should support Israel generally, politically. But we should not support Israel to the discouragement of our Arab brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I think that's, that's a nuance. We shouldn't, you, 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 and we should probably support Israel for a lot of political reasons, but you, we, are, we are closer to our Arab brothers and sisters in Christ than we are to unbelieving relatives or unbelieving Jews. And the only hope for Israel is Christ, not their, not their, not their Jewness. And, and, I, and I said a bunch of controversial things tonight. So any, any final questions before I pray? Yeah, Paul, real quick. It's always helpful for me to, to like distill this down in case I ever have to regurgitate it. I know that I'm never <laughs> going to be able to remember all the verses and all the yeah. points. But there's this, um, there's this verse in Acts chapter 4 that I think would refute anybody that would think that there's some magic yeah. potion that like Jews have to be saved apart from Christ. And it's... Acts 4.12, and it just says, And there is salvation in no one else, mm. for there is no other name under heaven given among mm. men by which we must be saved. Mm -hmm. And so there is, there is there's no secret path. There's no back door. There's nothing else. And, and that, if I'm, if I'm mm -hmm. you know, in a discussion or a dialogue with somebody, 
that doesn't have that view or isn't looking at that biblically, that's just a great sort of one verse to go to yeah. to go. There, there isn't no. There's no other. There's no other method here yes. other yes. than Jesus. Yes. Yes. Amen. And hey, maybe for a lot of good reasons we should support Israel politically as a nation. But let's not blur the fact that that doesn't mean that they're right with God and that we're right with God because of it. The only way anybody is right with God is because you are trusting in the one true Jew who's Jesus. So let's end with this, Romans 10 verse 1. And this is Paul's heart for his kinsmen, the ethnic Jew. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And so we should pray for Israel. And we should thank God that God by his grace has made us part of true Israel. In the one true Israelite who is Jesus in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Uh, we, every Christian, the story of Israel is the story of every Christian. We didn't need help. We were not chosen because of our morality or our goodness, but we were chosen by grace, and we need you. We need, we need more than an external law. We need a law written on our hearts, and you have done that through the power of the gospel, Jesus, who takes our dead heart and makes us alive, as Ephesians 2 says, and then gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can walk and obey you in sanctification until we reach that day when we will be with you forever and there will be no more sin. Lord, in the meantime, may we be winsome and Christ-centered evangelists to our neighbors, both Gentiles and Jews, and may we preach to the world that the only hope of the world is Christ and that our hearts need to be circumcised. We need to believe in him. May we preach the gospel to Israel. May, may you continue to gather Israel together from all over the world. And we long for that day when a mass evangelism, Lord willing, of Jews may happen in all of Israel. Every Jew and every Gentile. Every black person, every white person.